Good evening. An assailant takes a hammer to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. Was a psychedelic drug to blame. Lula squeezes out a victory in Brazil over a far-right opponent. A new nuclear cold war has begun. Did the Pentagon poison its own? And a new report says the activists were right about a flood project on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday, October 31st, 2022, known throughout the world as Halloween or the Day of the Dead. The man accused of attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer told police he wanted to hold the Democratic leader hostage and break her kneecaps to show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions. San Francisco police announced the arrest at a news conference. When the officers arrived on scene, they encountered an adult male and Mr. Pelosi's husband, Paul. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Ms. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarmed him, took him into custody, requested emergency backup, and rendered medical aid. The suspect has been identified as 42-year-old David DePepe. Mr. DePepe will be booked at the San Francisco County Jail on the following charges. Attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several, several other additional felonies. Officials say that David DePape, 42, carrying zip ties and tape in a backpack, broke into the couple's San Francisco home early Friday morning, went upstairs where 82-year-old Paul Pelosi was sleeping, and demanded to talk to Nancy. When a surprised Paul Pelosi told the intruder she was not there, DePape said he would wait. The assailant then started taking out twist ties to tie them up. The intruder made numerous online posts of a racist and right-wing nature, but was known to his neighbors as a committed left-winger, painting a confusing picture of someone apparently radicalized by online hate. His home was festooned with Black Lives Matter signs. His wife, a well-known San Francisco nudist named Gypsy Taub, supposedly married her husband in a naked outdoor ceremony. Whether they truly were married or not seems to be in question. The couple lived in a garbage-festooned drug den, according to neighbors, where they raised three children. It said the family hosted numerous drug-taking parties using the African psychedelic Ibogaine, a drug being studied for its ability to interrupt the craving for heroin and other addictive drugs. President Joe Biden called the attack despicable, as political leaders blamed the far right for the assault by stirring up mentally ill people. And the winner of the Brazilian presidential election on Sunday... Former President Lula da Silva promised he'd return Brazil to the international stage in a victory speech at the nation's capital. The following clip captures the street sound the moment Lula moved into the lead during the vote count last night. In his victory speech, Lula promised to protect the Amazon rainforest, make environmental sustainability a priority. He spoke of better trade deals with the U.S. and Europe and called for Brazil to have its own seat on the United Nations Security Council. He said the most urgent goal is to end hunger in Brazil and end rampant homelessness. And the United Kingdom Foreign Secretary James Cleverly says today Russia faces severe consequences if Vladimir Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. He told Parliament no other country is talking about nuclear use, no country is threatening Russia or President Putin. 
During a three-hour interview with the world media last week, Putin again claimed Ukraine is planning to use a radiological weapon or dirty bomb in its war with Russia, but he also emphasized the only country to use a nuclear bomb as a weapon is the United States, twice. The only country in the world that has used nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear state is the United States. They did it twice against Japan. What was the goal? There was no military purpose in that. It was it brought zero benefit militarily. It made no sense to use the weapon against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, against civilians, basically. Was there a territorial a threat to territorial in integrity of the U.S. or their sovereignty? No, of course not. There was no uh, point militarily to do that. The, the war machine of Japan was already broken down. They could not put up any resistance, basically. Why did they need to kill off Japan with a nuclear weapon? Japanese textbooks usually mention that the Allies have conducted a nuclear strike against Japan. So Japan is in such a, a grip that they cannot write the truth in their own textbooks. But they remember this tragedy every year. Still, well done. The Americans, well, we should uh, follow suit. They're well done, you know. That's what's happening. So the U.S. is the only country in the world who has used nu nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, in Washington, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says there's no sign Russia is readying its nuclear arsenal. And he had this to say about whether the dirty bomb rhetoric could be a cover for an attack. I won't get into any uh, potential responses here. Uh, I'm the guy that makes the recommendation to my boss on, on what we should do and, uh, and how we should do it. And so uh, I'll make sure that, uh, that he has uh, credible um, responses that are, that are actually effective in, uh, in terms of what we want to do, and, and, uh, as we always have. Uh, and so I'll just leave it at that. Is there any concern that that could be a cover for a strike, a nuclear strike inside Ukraine? Are you confident that that's not what this is? It's uh, something we continue to watch, uh, and uh, we haven't seen anything to cause us to believe at this point that there, that is uh, some kind of cover activity. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. The talk of nuclear weapons is a recent development in world affairs. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992 brought a new raft of treaties that seemed to put most of the nuclear genie back in the bottle. But yesterday, the Biden administration released its nuclear posture review for 2022. It states the United States is facing a greater nuclear threat than ever from Russia and China and calls for more spending on nukes. The executive director of the anti-nuke Western States Legal Foundation is Jackie Cabasso. She speaks with the news. What they're saying publicly in the nuclear posture review that was released yesterday by the 2030s, the United States will, for the first time in history, have two major nuclear powers as strategic competitors and potential adversaries, and it identifies Russia in the near term and China in the longer term as posing um, the most major nuclear threats to the United States as allies and partners. And so that is the, largely the justification that reinvesting in and rebuilding, basically, the entire existing nuclear arsenal, which is plenty plenty powerful and destructive as it is the strategic triad of delivery systems intercontinental ballistic missiles submarine launched ballistic missiles and strategic bombers is being replaced with new models 
and a suite of upgraded nuclear warheads. And basically, this is for the foreseeable future. What this document says is for the foreseeable future, nuclear weapons will continue to provide unique deterrence effects that no other element of the U.S. military power can replace. Nuclear deterrence is a term that we're hearing a lot, uh, but what it really means when it's when you come down to it is the threatened use of nuclear weapons and this nuclear posture review also explicitly rejects declaratory policy of no first use or sole purpose so it's business as usual um it's recapitulates the previous nuclear posture reviews and it's the latest demonstration of this remarkable continuity in United States nuclear weapons policy, national security policy, really. A national death wish, which is being emulated by all of the other nuclear armed states, including Russia. You've elucidated the problem. I don't think there's more we can add to that. I think we all see it. What is the way out of this? This would have been a pivotal moment in history to strike a different tone and saying the situation with nuclear weapons is so dangerous that all of the nuclear armed states need to ramp it down, and the United States is going to lead the way by doing X, Y, and Z. For example, people like Dan Ellsberg have been calling for a long time for uh, eliminating the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, that's the 400 intercontinental ballistic missiles that sit in the heartland of the United States, ready to launch uh, at a moment's notice, but also providing a juicy target should there be a first strike from an adversary. But instead of that, they're building a whole new intercontinental ballistic system of the same number, 400 missiles, but they specifically say that they retain the option of loading more than one warhead in each one, which would be a return to previous times. So there needs to be a unprecedented multi-issue multi-generational, multi-racial, international movement. And the one that gives me the most hope now is the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, which has picked up Martin Luther King's unfinished work and which identifies five interlocking injustices, systemic poverty, systemic racism, environmental devastation, militarism and the war economy, and a distorted religious moral narrative which blames poor people for their own poverty. What I think <laughs> our government should be doing, or what and what we should be pressing it to do, is to really say, whoa, hold it, let's be an adult in the room here. This is out of control. We need to have a different concept of security, which values human security first and foremost, and not a national security premised on overwhelming military might. Jackie Cabasso is executive director of the Anti-Nuke Western States Legal Foundation. In related news, Chinese ambassador for disarmament affairs, Li Song, blasted the nuclear posture review. He says the U.S. is hyping up major power competition and reflects the logic of hegemony. Former President Barack Obama was in Milwaukee over the weekend, supporting Senate candidate and Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Barnes has been targeted by GOP ads described as racist. One ad shows a black person who was driving a car that plowed into a Christmas parade in a white suburb. As the narrator says, Mandela Barnes, he wants to protect criminals, not us. He's too dangerous for Wisconsin. 
Obama compared the ads to the racist birther conspiracies, claiming that Obama himself was not a U.S. citizen. To laughs, Obama brought up the infamous birth certificate. I know that there's some folks, probably maybe not in this auditorium, but elsewhere in Wisconsin, who think, and I know these ads are running this way, that just because Mandela's named Mandela, <laughs> that it, just because he's a Democrat with a, with a funny name, he must not be like you. He must not share your values. I mean, we've seen this. It sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? So, so Mandela, get ready to dig up that birth certificate. Remember when that, that's the good old days. Remember when that was the craziest thing that people said? Think about that. Like that, that wasn't that long ago. Everybody's all like, wow, that, that's some crazy stuff. Now it doesn't even make the top 10 list of crazy. During Obama's presidency, one of the biggest shills for the false birther conspiracy was former president and Obama's successor, Donald Trump. And in more news in the same vein, former President Donald Trump is going to the Supreme Court again, this time to try to stop his tax returns from being handed to a congressional committee. In an emergency appeal filed today, Trump wants the court to order at least a temporary hold on the Treasury Department turning over his returns to the Democratic-controlled House Ways and Means Committee. Lower courts ruled that the committee has broad authority to obtain tax returns and rejected Trump's claims that it was overstepping. The case was rejected by the Supreme Court once before when the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. obtained copies of Trump's personal and business tax records as part of a criminal investigation. And the United States military said last week is ready to drain 1 million gallons of jet fuel from three pipelines as an initial step in closing a World War II-era fuel storage facility at Hickam Base in Hawaii. The pipelines run about three miles under the Red Hill Fuel Bulk Storage Facility in the mountains above Pearl Harbor down to the military base. The fuel has been sitting in the pipe since the military suspended use of the Red Hill facility last year after it leaked petroleum into a drinking water well serving 93,000 people in and around Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam. Nearly 6,000 people, mostly military personnel and their families, sought medical attention for rashes, sores, nausea, and other ailments after drinking and bathing with the contaminated water, spewing numerous lawsuits. One of the soldiers who was a victim of the fuel contamination is Major Mandy Faint, who says her infant son and husband are still suffering the effects of drinking and bathing in the polluted water. She spoke with the news. I didn't know anything about Red Hill. I didn't know anything about this bulk storage facility that had been in existence for 80 plus years. I had no idea. We had gotten sick several times, but again, never, ever do we consider that it was the water. We just were reasonably thinking people and thought we were just getting sick. You know, kids are at the daycare or whatever. People were saying that their houses were smelling like gas stations. They started tasting the water. The water tasted funny. People were getting headaches. Kids were like out of school, migraines, throwing up, diarrhea, all the things. I'm like, oh my goodness. We received an email from the base commander that said, hey, we're hearing reports of this situation. There's no indication that the water is not safe. We're still drinking the water. But in that email, they failed to mention that on that same day, that the Department of Health for Hawaii had issued a drinking water health advisory. They didn't tell us that. We ended up finding court documents that back in May, remember I told you about how we moved in there, there was a couple Mm -hmm. during the summer, and then this massive spill on the 20th of November that actually the Navy reported to the Department of Health, but they never reported it to 
the residents. As a service member, I felt completely betrayed and I felt like, God, this is wrong. You know, I'm a senior leader. Like, I got to step in here. It's my duty to step in when folks have been harmed. So that's exactly what I did. But then as a mother, quite honestly, I was really upset because I just felt like, how dare the Navy think that they somehow reserve a right to know more about what my family, my own children are being exposed to than I do as their mother. And that was a really hard pill for me to swallow. And there's obviously a lot of anger associated with that because had I known that there was a massive spill on the 20th of November, I would have had my kids and my family stop drinking the water then. We could have prevented potentially being... You don't always get all the information and uh, it's not always so safe for everybody. I mean, was there an elder they ever approach you with that? Well, that's part of the job. I raised my right hand many years ago as a cadet, you know, 20 plus years ago and said, hey, I know there's an inherent risk, but I am devoting my life. But our innocent children, my husband, who is a civilian, 93,000 families, the civilians, the people of Hawaii, it wasn't just military families that were impacted. There are civilians and there are, you know, the native folks of Hawaii who have been fighting this military asset for many years. None of those people signed up for this. And they very much should have been informed immediately. Say that, hey, I mean, I was going to say, I didn't want to seem too cheeky by saying, well, I know all about Camp Lejeune because I see it on television and on the internet a hundred times a day. But as the rest of America does, and that's the first time they heard of it, right? And so is this going to be one of those, I mean, what was going through my mind, is this going to be one of those things where uh, late night TV advertisements on uh, my pillow uh, will tell us about something we should have known of before in Red Hill? Well, the difference between us and Camp Lejeune is that they didn't find out about the exposure until years and years after. They were outside the statute of limitations. This is that we know of the first time in history that we're actually filing suit in real time, like while this is happening. And, and of course, I'm, I'm an active duty service member. I cannot file a lawsuit against the United States. But Google Fight versus the United States of America, my husband, my two children, and my parents are all named in a lawsuit right now. The law firm that we're with represents 800 clients. 93,000 people were impacted. I imagine that, yes, you very soon will be hearing all of those ads on your TV at night. Major Mandy Faint says her infant son and her husband are still suffering the effect of drinking and bathing in the polluted water. The Red Hill facility sits just 100 feet above one of Honolulu's most important drinking water aquifers. In local news, 26-year-old Gilberto Garcia died in custody in Rikers Island today. He'd been locked up the past three years waiting trial on a robbery charge and is the 18th person to die at the jail this year. The death comes after a federal monitor overseeing the jail system said Rikers Island jails continued to be patently unsafe and trapped in a state of persistent dysfunction. The New York City Council's Progressive Caucus is announcing its legislative agenda for 2023 on Thursday, pursuing 20 bills in seven categories on criminal justice reform, police transparency, housing affordability, public banking, waste and emission reduction, and gig worker benefits. At the top of the agenda is a proposal to ban solitary confinement in city jails introduced by public advocate and former council member Jumani Williams and council member Carlina Rivera, who chairs the Committee on Criminal Justice. Three other bills aim to create and expand access to permanently affordable housing in the city. In more local news, 10 years after Superstorm Sandy devastated New York City's shores, an analysis by New York City Comptroller Brad Lander finds the recovery is painfully slow in both recovery and spending. While the city has used up two-thirds of the $15 billion in federal grants, only a small percentage of city funds allocated have been spent.
The superstorm caused the death of 43 people in New York and about $19 billion in damages. The report published by city controller Brad Landers says in a generation, the bill for climate-related damage will top $242 billion. The report also finds the controversial Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project is facing unexpected headwinds. The city has spent only 13% of the money it allocated for the seawalls and flip-up gates meant to keep surging seas out of lower Manhattan. And the project initially scheduled to be done next year might take up to seven more years to complete. Mayor Eric Adams responded to the report with a news conference last week where he broke ground on one of the massive steel gates as a sign the project was still on track. Uh, but these projects have never been built before. And so we don't want to move at a rapid pace just to say, okay, we spent the money. No, we have to get it right. We have to get it right. Uh, what we're doing here is going to uh, set the course for other municipalities with coastal cities. And so, you know, there's really, there's always a desire uh, to say we're going to, we're going to just spend all the money that was allocated. The previous administrations, they did the right thing by getting it right. We're going to get it right. And that 27% that's remaining, uh, those projects have been identified, but it's about making sure these projects are done cor correctly. Mayor Adams. Despite the support of District City Council person Carlina Rivera, the project has been unpopular in the Lower East Side. It led to the destruction of a thousand trees, beloved facilities, and sports fields, a loss that may be felt for years. Another problem for the troubled flood control project is the discovery of widespread arsenic contamination in Reese houses directly across from the East River Park. An activist with East River Park Action is Tommy Loeb. The group is opposed to the city plan and have their own plan for the park. Loeb spoke with the news. It confirms what we said from day one about this project. People have to remember a project like this has never been done before. The city only got two bids on this project, which is a billion and a half dollars. And they had to accept the low bid, which was uh, submitted by a contractor who had never done a project of this type. And in fact, just to remind people, the outgoing controller, Scott Stringer, did not, he found that this company might not have been qualified for a variety of reasons to do this project, and he refused to sign the contract. But Mayor de Blasio, on one of the last days of administration in December, overrode the controller and for the first time in a long time, signed the contract himself. So here we are now, uh, three and a half years after the project was uh, first committed to, and we were told that we were going to have flood protection for the entire community in three and a half years. And now we're told that we won't even have uh, flood protection for half the project by 2024. Yeah. And again, to remind people, Half a project protects nobody because if the water comes in uh, between Houston Street and 23rd Street, all of the Lower East Side and Lower Manhattan will flood anyway. The purpose of this whole project was to cut down a thousand trees and then it's over. We have five separate projects going on in Lower Manhattan, each with a different way of approaching this, none of which approached the entire problem. I have to remind people again the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project only protects against storm surge and sea level rise. The city admits it will not protect 
the Lower East Side against a rain event like uh, Ida again or uh, uh, Ian this year that did not hit us. Um, if that happens, they say we may flood anyway because now we're going to have an eight-foot wall between us and the river. During Sandy, the water came in, but it was able to retreat again out, to, out, out of the park within hours. Right. That won't be able to happen now again. Who's behind this? Who's making these decisions? It seems so haphazard. You have to realize the alphabet soup that is coordinating this project. And that goes from the New York City Department of Design and Construction, who is supposed to be the overseers of the project. But then you get New York City DOT, New York City Environmental Protection, New York City Design Commission, the federal FEMA. There are so many agencies, each having their own jurisdiction, and then the controller points out there's no one person in charge of this. Carlina Rivera, I mean, I know she gets all her support from people who live in those projects right on Jacob Reese and those projects right on the water, but I've talked to folks there, and they say the board of directors of those NYCHA housings are not in touch, who support Carlina, are not in touch with the residents. We did petitioning in NYCHA housing. And we got over 2,000 signatures of NYCHA residents who said to us they opposed this project. We've had rallies and demonstrations and voices of opposition from NYCHA. They've used a sort of a red herring. The first thing the city said was, if we don't do this, you're going to be exposed in the next few years to, and you might die. People told me scary stories of us. Uh, yes, well, my building was flooded. I have no interest in seeing the Lower East Side flooded. Our fight has not been yes or no. It's been about a better plan, which the community had in 2019, which again, cost half of what the city is spending. We acknowledge our plan would have required the cutting down of some trees, but it would not have re reduced the amphitheater to rubble. Tommy Loeb is an activist with EastRiverParkAction.org. In related news, another problem for the troubled flood control project is the discovery of widespread arsenic contamination in Reese houses directly across from East River Park. In August, a lab, Environmental Management and Technology, reported its tests showed elevated levels of arsenic. Eight days later, EMT suddenly reversed itself, retracting its findings. Activists had predicted contaminated landfill for the resiliency project would endanger local residents, with the reports of lead and arsenic in a part of the city well-known for its high asthma rates. And finally, a magnitude 4 Mars quake detected by NASA's InSight Mars lander on Christmas Eve 2021 was caused by a 16 to 32 foot wide meteorite striking the planet, gouging a 70 foot deep, 492 feet across crater and showing evidence of water at a place thought devoid of ice. Working together with an orbiter flying high above Mars, NASA was able to connect the rare event with the lander's seismograph. Then they sped up the shockwave 100 times to allow human ears to detect the sounds of Mars. This is about 45 minutes of uh, seismic data, and you'll be able to hear it in a little less than half a minute. So if we can go ahead and roll that animation now, you can listen closely to the sounds of Mars.
And what you've experienced there is the first bulge and you can see in the image was the P wave coming in, the, the first wave that comes from any seismic event. And then the big bulge there is the S wave. And then buried in that is actually the surface wave, which is one of the real interesting findings from this new event. In almost four years of InSight roaming Mars, it has recorded over 1,300 Mars quakes, but this was the first that generated surface waves rippling across the top of the planet's crust. And that's some of the news for Monday, October 31st, 2022. The news was produced and written by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.